Well, good morning. Why don't you turn to somebody next to you and say good morning if you haven't had chance to already. <clears throat> I believe it would be a dreadful thing to come to church and have nobody greet you at all. So let's not let that happen. Say hi, welcome them, greet them, share your testimony, tell them how great it was that Wolves came back from 2-0 down to win 3-2. Yes, all of the good things that God is doing. He's a faithful God. Bless you guys. Have fun out there. We will see you later. Uh, and uh, we are here in this bit. We're going to be starting a new series this morning. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, thinking about discovering our shape. We touched on this in autumn when I said that in the new year, we'd do a series around this. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, and if you want to follow along uh, and kind of get ahead and do a bit more reading and the reading around, I want to recommend to you this great book by Eric Reese. Uh, how many of you have heard of Saddleback Church over in California? Yeah, Rick Warren's church. Highly regard Rick Warren and what's happening there. Incredible people doing an incredible work. Uh, I once was very challenged by something Rick Warren wrote. I was with a friend and together we were studying his book, The Purpose Driven uh, Church. And in that book, he was talking about uh, the commitment to be in a particular place for the whole of your life. And I was really challenged by this. And I was sitting down with a friend who's a Baptist minister and we we're talking and I said, I'm feeling so challenged by this line about being willing to buy your burial plot and stay in that place forever. And he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Jonathan, he lives in California. But there's a lot going on there. And they do some really great programs. And one of the programs they run is called Shape. And so this is a book that goes along with their program. I'm going to be using this really as a source text. If you read the book along, you will see the echoes and you'll see the shape of what we're doing. I won't tell their stories because they're their stories. I'll tell my stories and I'll try and shape it for us. But if you want to follow along, I want to recommend this book to you. It's called Shape. It's by Eric Reese. I'll leave it here on the table so you can take a look later. This idea is uh, that we want to become everything that God has enabled us to be. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 139. We're going to be looking at a couple of passages, uh, a psalm, and we're going to be looking at a couple of passages in the uh, New Testament a bit later. But let's just start with Psalm 139. You see, I have this deep-rooted conviction in me that a large part of the reason why there is uh, such a, a struggle at the moment for contemporary people to understand their identity and to, to seek to find their identity and make sense of their identity in all kinds of places and in all kinds of uh, ways. Identity politics around who, what we believe in politically, who we think we are as people, uh, a whole bunch of different ways people are seeking to find their identity the reason we are seeing in our generation right now this massive upsurge in the search for identity is because we are reaping what it is now to be maybe the second or the third generation to live in a nation where the story of God is not the backdrop to our lives anymore. And that disconnection with the story of God means that we don't know who we are. And we live among people who don't know who they are. And so this search for identity is, is kind of what happens 
when a nation cuts itself adrift from the story of God being the story of their lives. If you want to show off, you can talk about the search for a new meta-narrative. There you go. Only use that in the right circles, otherwise you look really pretentious. We need a story. We live among people who are searching for a story. And as they drift through their life, searching for story and searching for identity, they're grasping on all kinds of things to seek to give life meaning. You know, in James, James writes this little line. He says, you know, unless we kind of dig into what God says about us and then live out of it, we're like people who look into a mirror and then turn away and forget what we look like. Isn't that fascinating? In the midst of our search for identity in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, James is writing, if we don't root who we are and what we do and what God says about us, we're like people who have no sense of our own identity. Isn't that incredible? 2,000 years ago. James chapter 1, if you want to look at that later. And I want us to understand that you have an identity and a character and a purpose that is rooted in things that God says about you and what God thinks about you and what God has destined for you. And when we get in touch with all of that stuff, we find our identity and what's more, we find our purpose. Not only who am I, but what am I here for? And so we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at this thing called shape, uh, finding our purpose, and the, uh, the letters in shape stand for things. We'll maybe talk about that in a few moments. But I want us to begin with what it is that God says about us. That's giving you plenty of time to turn on your Bible or open it up to Psalm 139. And I want to read just a few verses from verse 14. Well, let's go from 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Other translations where it says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Speak of God creating a masterpiece. I want you to realize from the beginning of this series, this is what God thinks you are. You are an unfinished masterpiece. Some of you don't believe that, so I'll say it again. I might say it a few more times. You are an unfinished masterpiece. There is a process that an artist goes through when they create something. Um, let's have a look at a piece of art just because it's nice to look at pretty things and it stops you looking at me the whole time. Uh, the second slide in this is a painting. If I had candy canes on trees, I'd be throwing out candy canes. If anybody knows who the artist is for this, in real life it's a little bit darker than this. It's slightly washed out on the projector. But anybody know who the artist is? Clint? No, not Clint. Similar-ish times. Manet, could be Manet, couldn't it? Similar. If we could get a good definition of this, you would see, and unfortunately it doesn't quite show up, that actually this is those little strokes. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of strokes. This is an artist called Camille Pissarro, and it's his piece called, very inventively, Woman with a Green Scarf. <laughs> Great at painting, maybe not so good with the titles. Woman with a Green Scarf. 
And this painting hangs in the Musée d'Orsay. Anybody been to the Musée d'Orsay? It's a beautiful place. If, if you ever wanted to transplant me and leave me in a place where I would happily be for weeks, then Musée d'Orsay is probably it. I saw this and didn't move for 45 minutes. And I stood in front of it. Susanna's wandering around. Are you still looking at this painting? She loops of the Musée d'Orsay and keeps coming back to me. It's not quite that bad. I just looked at it and I'm amazed. And I kind of find myself catching my breath as I look at this. You need to see it in the reality, folks. You can see a very good reproduction up in my office, just printed off in a frame because Susanna made, got me one for my birthday. This painting is phenomenal. It's made up of just thousands upon thousands of the tiniest touches, the tiniest little brush strokes. Each one thought of beforehand, designed to go in a particular place, designed to have a particular effect, but thought through and intentional, thousands upon thousands of tiny little brush strokes in order to create this magnificent painting of a woman with a scarf on her head. There is a process that an artist goes through in creating a masterpiece. Maybe doesn't know that it's going to be a masterpiece at the beginning. It's just creating because, first of all, in their mind, they've imagined it. They can see it in their mind. Before it hits the canvas, they can see it in their minds. And the thing you've got to realize with a painting as opposed to a photograph, and photographs can be artistic and amazing, absolutely, but if I were to take a picture of you now, it would just be a picture of just what is in front of me, and I would have captured all of that stuff just in one touch. There would have been very little intention about that other than the intention to capture this image, to capture this vision that I can see before me. With a painting, everything that's in the painting is there on purpose. It wasn't like, you know, somebody's bag fell open and the content spilled out and so you just happen to capture it when you look at the picture later and say, oh look, we've got that as well. You know, if that happens in the painting, it's because the painter put it there. And so the painter goes through this process of seeing in their mind's eye, being able to imagine this painting. And then from that, planning, how am I going to make this painting? What oils am I going to use? What, what am I going to use to paint it onto? Am I going to put this on wood so it's kind of really long-lasting, but the paint has a different effect? Am I going to put it onto paper, onto hide, onto canvas? What am I going to use to create this painting? And then once the planning has been done, then the actual creation takes place and the thing is made. There's a process that goes through. And I want you to realize that you are in the midst of a process of God turning you, you are an unfinished masterpiece. He is creating a masterpiece. Psalm 139 says, His works are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are wonderfully made. He's creating a masterpiece that he hasn't finished yet. God's not like us. Isn't that so good? You know, I could preach all of my sermons, we could record them all, put them all online, and there would gradually be a consensus that was maybe one or two that really stood out. And in anybody who creates, and in an artist's life, maybe there's one or two real masterpieces that jump out, you know? Leonardo DiCaprio only created one Mona Lisa. Leonardo da Vinci? That's because... Oh, 
Leonardo DiCaprio only created one Gilbert Grape. And Leonard Cohen only produced one Hallelujah. No. It's in the young man. Performance in Gilbert Grape. Best ever. In our lives, we might do really well to create one masterpiece. And amongst all that we create, there might be something that stands out. The scripture reveals that God is busy making masterpieces. And that God's not like us. He doesn't just have it in him to create one amazing thing. He creates beautiful things. Beautiful things. And every single thing that God creates has a unique purpose. Everything he creates, he has imagined what its role and its function is going to be. Everything that God creates, he can see how it fits together with the other things that he's created in order that his purposes and that his plans are worked out. You create me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God imagined you. God planned you. God creates you and recreates you and is continuing to form you. Even to this day, he's not finished with you yet. You are an unfinished masterpiece that he's working on. And you have a unique shape, a shape that is just you. And we're going to be thinking in this series about how he has formed you with a unique blend of these things. They'll be in the house group notes, so don't worry, you don't have to write them down now, but if you're not using house group notes later, then feel free to grab a pen and use the space in your, your update for notes. A unique blend of spiritual gifts, of what's in your heart, of your abilities, of your personality, and your experiences. Shape. And here's the thing, and I want to encourage you to do this, that in this series, if all we do is take on some head knowledge, well, that'll be kind of fun and interesting, but my plan is not that we take on head knowledge, but instead we figure out who we are, we find the identity that Jesus is forming in us out of relationship with him, we find our purpose and our role in serving him and serving other people, and then we start to celebrate our uniqueness. Live in the fullness of it. The unique thing that God has crafted you to do, I really want you to find ways of flourishing in that and doing it and living out of it. That's the whole plan of the series. We find our purpose, find our shape, and then live out of it. Celebrate your uniqueness. Be the very best version of you that you can be. Here's the thing, there is a kind of things that go around and somebody once said it, you can be anything you want to be. I don't believe that is true. I'd love to be an astronaut, but have you seen the training those guys do? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. My career as an international supermodel, it's not going to happen. I'm afraid it's a lie that our culture tells us so that we keep searching for something and we keep buying stuff. You can be anything you want to be. I don't believe that. But I tell you what I do believe. You can be everything that God intended you to be. 
everything. You don't have to live in 10% of it or 25% of it or even half of it. You don't even have to just kind of like move closer to it. You can live in the fullness of it because that's what he created you to do. That's what he created you to be. Live in the fullness of what he made you to be. So today we're going to think about the S. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? That was just an introduction to a whole series, not just to a message. So we've talked recently about spiritual gifts which is kind of why I felt I could go a bit over the top with the introduction here. Turn with me then in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to not go through them all one by one, uh, but I'm going to give us some kind of overview of what spiritual gifts are and then encourage you to get notes from house groups that will be available in a couple of days' time. Sorry, life groups if you're in a life group. Uh, If not, just email me and I'll send you the notes and I'll include in the notes that go out to life groups a couple of online surveys that you might want to take a look at that will be helpful in this, okay? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, says this about spiritual gifts. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines couple of thoughts. This first thing to say is this list is not an exhaustive list. We've mentioned this recently, but uh, on the notes for life groups, I'll give you a couple of other readings. If you're making notes, uh, then you could look at these following passages. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. You could look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and onwards. Those will be in the life group notes later. This list is not exhaustive. There are, other, there are other lists in the New Testament that I just pointed out. So it's the principles I want you to see. First thing, who is it that gets these spiritual gifts? According to the reading that we just read together. Who is it that gets them? Everyone. To each one is given. Turn to somebody near you and say, you've got a spiritual gift. If you are filled by the Spirit. And that's a big if, you see. It's a big if. Now, I've been in congregations and I've been in places where people have tried to figure out what their spiritual gift might be because the bloke at the front told them they had a spiritual gift. And so they sit down and they look at all the gifts and they think, oh, that one feels like me, it must be that. And the point is they've never been filled with the Spirit. 
The first step in each of us receiving a gift of the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, I know that is Noddy Does Theology, forgive me, but I just want to make the point. In the New Testament, what we see happening is we see these apostles, these people who were sent out by Jesus to go and build the church, going out, preaching the gospel, and then they would lay their hands on people and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and people would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'd know they were filled with the Holy Spirit because they'd begin worshipping, they'd begin prophesying, they'd begin speaking in other tongues. God would be doing something among them. There would be a visible sign of what God has done. Something took place. I mean, it's so obvious that in at least one place, a wizard tries to buy the skill. Acts chapter 8, read the story. And so friends, unless you've had that moment where you've had that conscious kind of, God, I want to be utterly filled with your spirit, and you've had an experience of the spirit, don't go looking for the gifts. It's unlikely that they're there. The Bible's really clear. The moment any single one of us becomes a follower of Jesus, there's like a little mark, a stamp, a a measure of the Holy Spirit that comes upon us. It sets us apart and says we're God's, which is different from what I'm talking about here, which is this experience that we all need to have of saying, God, I want to be filled with your spirit. Now, Paul elsewhere says that we have to kind of continue in that vein. It's not a one-off deal. It's not like we go and we get our ticket and then that's it, we've done it. Every single day we need to keep being filled with the Spirit because we're kind of leaky and because we kind of mess things up and we drift away from God and all kinds of things. So Paul writes this very peculiar phrase. He says, keep on being filled with the Spirit or be being filled with the Spirit. Maintain that posture of constantly receiving from God. But there has to come a first moment, a first moment where we say, God, I want to be filled with your spirit. Now, to all of those who've come to that place, to all of those who've said, God, fill me with your spirit, to all of those, every single one, something of the spiritual gifts have been given. And he distributes them as he wants, not as we would like. Oh, I think prophecy looks fantastic. God, I'd like prophecy. I'm putting in my order for the spiritual gift of prophecy, please. (gasps) Prophecy looks kind of scary, but I'm quite up for praying. So God, I'll have faith because I can have that quietly in the corner and I'll hide my little gift of faith. It'll just be me and you praying. Give me the gift of faith, please. I'm afraid that's not how it works. Here what we see is the Father, Son, and the Spirit being involved in the distribution of these gifts as the Spirit sees is right, as God has designed and enabled. Why? Because he's the one that imagined you. He's the one that planned you. He's the one that is creating and recreating you. So it's up to him. And so he distributes these spiritual gifts, gifts that are given in order that we can unlock the potential that is in us in order that we can fully be everything that God wants us to be. He gives us these spiritual gifts. They are spiritual gifts. They come from the Spirit. It's something that only the Spirit could do within us. It's not like an enhanced personality trait. I once knew somebody, I won't even give away the sex just in case they listen to this message because they might or if I give away too much detail, there was somebody who once said, I have a spiritual gift of administration, so I'm gonna organize this. Actually, they were a bully. 
And what they did was they told other people what to do and they coerced and they cajoled and they used the force of their personality to get people to behave as they wanted them to behave. They were not a good organiser at all. They were just quite threatening, so people did stuff. Not in this church. It's not some kind of enhanced personality trait. It's not a natural talent either. These are spiritual gifts. It's not just, oh, I'm really good at juggling. I wonder if God gave me a spiritual gift of juggling. No. But if, for example, you've never juggled in your life, and you walk and you're talking to a group of circus performers, and one of them throws three balls at you, and all of a sudden, you start juggling, and they're amazed, that just might be them. I can't imagine any other use for a spiritual gift of juggling, and it's not mentioned in scripture, so don't build a theology on it. It's not a natural talent, it's not a personality trait, it's not something that you've trained yourself to do. It might be blended with those and it might complement those and once you figure out what it is, as we come to the end of this message today, you'll hear something of how we might work on strengthening that and living in the fullness of that, but it's not those things. This is something that if the spirit was not in your life, you could no longer do. Do you understand? If the spirit's not with you, that bit doesn't work anymore. So if it's like you enjoy leading, and there's some good leadership around you, and if there was no spirit in your life, nothing would change, you don't have a spiritual gift of leadership. What you've got are some really good leadership qualities that you've honed in yourself. The spiritual gifts work because the spirit is at work in us. If the spirit were not there, it would no longer work. It's that fundamental. And these are different from the fruit of the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul's going to tell us what the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is. So if we're filled with the Spirit, there'll be some outworkings of that. And he names these nine things that he says we will continue to grow in, and he names all nine. And frustratingly for us, he uses a singular word. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He says one fruit, we should all be growing in all of those things, that's the fruit in us. It's the gifts, plural. So whereas all of us should all be growing all of the time in all of those fruits, we don't get all of the gifts. Which is pretty good, because some of us, that might go to our heads. We're all growing in all of the fruit of the Spirit, but the gifts, they just get distributed as Jesus wants them to be distributed. As the Father has designed that they should be manifest in your life, that's how they get distributed. In the book, Eric Reese, I wrote down the quote because I wanted to get it right, he speaks about a spiritual gift being a God-given ability placed within you the moment that you become a follower of Jesus and filled with the Spirit in order that you can share the love of Jesus and help build up his church. That's the purpose. Not that you look good, but that others would come to know Jesus and that the church would be built up. These spiritual gifts are given not for you. It's not all about you. It's about building up the church and about other people coming to know Jesus. There is a purpose in them all. And that purpose is for others to come to know Jesus and be filled with the Spirit, find their identity, their meaning and their purpose, and for all of us to become the people that God has destined us to be. You know, if you turned over a couple of chapters, you'll come to 
1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's amazing how the Bible works like that. If you go two chapters on from 12, you end up in 14. Quite amazing. And in the middle, get this. Can you guess what's there? Chapter 13 is astonishing. Chapter 14 is another chapter that talks about the gifts and how they're used and how they get used in worship. And here's one of the things that I love about this. Chapter 12, there's this list of the gifts. Chapter 14, there's how the gifts get used. And sandwiched in the middle is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a song, an anthem towards what? Love. I think it's there on purpose, like God designed the thing. A reminder in our conversations about gifts of the Spirit that unless love is going through the whole lot, it's just a, a clanging cymbal. It's a gong. It's just noise. But these are about an expression of God's love. Love being seen through the power of God manifest among his people. God enabling you to do something you could never do on your own and revealing his love to the world so they can find him and to each other so that we can be encouraged and built up and brought into the shape of everything he wants us to be. Those passages that I mentioned earlier, they'll be on the life group notes, they contain other lists. And uh, I wrote down, or the book helpfully wrote down for me, so I just wrote them on a piece of paper, uh, at least 20 that the New Testament mentions of these spiritual gifts. Administration, an apostleship, discernment, encouragement, evangelism, faith, giving, healing, helping, hospitality, interpretation, knowledge, leadership, mercy, miracles, pastoring, prophecy, teaching, speaking in tongues, and wisdom. Isn't that an incredible list? And I think there's more. I don't think that's an exhaustive list. If we look in the Old Testament, we see creativity and artistry. We even see fighting battles. All done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So friends, we need to be people who come to God first and say, fill me with your spirit and keep filling with me with your spirit. And then saying, God, I'm open to being used by you. Help me to find out what my spiritual gift is. When we start to figure it out, there are four traps that we might fall into that the enemy would love to kind of get us into that place because it robs us from the joy and the power of moving fully in those spiritual gifts. The first of the traps that we might fall into is the trap of comparison. We might take a look at somebody else's gift and say, I want that gift rather than the one that I've been given. Um, it may be that there is uh, some upfront kind of gift that we think would help us be more famous or something. You know, if only I had a gift of prophecy or, or if only I had a gift of evangelism and could lead many, many people to faith and others would respect me or whatever. And so we kind of, we start to look at other people's giftings and we want what they've got. And that's the problem with comparison all the time is it makes us unhappy with what we've got. And instead of learning to live in the fullness of what it is that God's given to us and realizing that is the most fulfilled we'll ever be, instead, we live our lives in comparison and jealousy and it robs us of joy. The second would be to kind of project about our gift. So, for example, one of my spiritual giftings, uh, boy with no GCSEs but did eventually get a degree, one of my spiritual giftings may well be teaching. There are flashes of inspiration, things that the Spirit reveals to me as I'm teaching from time to time. And there are things that I see when I read Scripture that I know I haven't read about in books, but I can see the dots being joined between lots of passages of Scripture when I do it. 
Now, you might come to me and say, oh, I'm struggling with this bit of scripture, and I could say to you, gosh, it's dead easy, isn't it? Can't you just see how all this fits together? If I ever do that, just tell me I do that. I mean, hopefully I never would. I'm using myself as an example so none of you think I'm talking about you. We can think, because I do this in the Spirit, it must be easy for you too. Because I'm a gifted evangelist and I can tell people about Jesus, I don't understand why you've got a hang-up about telling people about Jesus. It's dead easy, isn't it? You don't speak in tongues yet. Well, you just kind of let it go. You just pray and then God takes over. Why haven't you done it yet? And I can project on you that because it was easy for me to move in that gift, so it must be easy for you. Do you know what happens? We both get frustrated and annoyed. (laughs) We both get frustrated and annoyed. Two more traps. One is just to reject it. (laughs) It's just to say, I don't want that. I'm not having that. God seems to reveal to you that he's given you a gift of prophecy, which isn't about future telling. I mean, we're not like Mystic Meg. That's not what we are here. Prophecy is about this is what God says to us in this moment to help us understand the times we're living in and to help us see what it is he's doing. I think prophecy is probably one of the most rejected gifts in the church because with prophecy comes rejection. With prophecy can come a kind of ungodly frustration as you stand in that gap between what is and what God knows could be. And so some of us might say when God reveals stuff to us, actually I don't want that God, and just refuse. The fourth trap for us to fall into would be a trap of deception, which is where the enemy would love to convince us we have a particular gift and we haven't. But because of all kinds of things, our own fixations, our own desires, what's on in our hearts, he makes it dead easy for us to think we've got a gift, but it's actually nothing that's ever come from God. We've been deceived. Four traps that we should fall into. So, what am I saying? Be filled with the Spirit. Well, come to Jesus first. Be filled with the Spirit. Figure out what your gift is. Live in the fullness of that gift. And this is all part of discovering what your unique shape is. This then blends in with these other four things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. And you will find out what it is that God has equipped you uniquely to do in the body of Christ. And you will live in the fullness of the identity that he has for you. Amazing stuff, huh? Easy to hear, harder to do. Which is why he's put us in a community of believers so we do this together. If you're not in a life group, this would be a really good week to join a life group. If you don't know who the life group leaders are, then just Jenny, who's been leading us in our sung worship, go and talk to Jenny, and she will, or, or me, and we will help you find a life group leader. But if you're here, you're part of our fellowship, and you haven't joined a life group yet, ooh, you're going to find it real hard just to work this stuff out on your own, because it isn't what God ever intended. God intended for you to work it out in a community. And so how we strengthen our gifts are by doing this in community, are by saying this is who we are, are like taking our faith in our hands and our courage and stepping out and doing it in a community, a community where hopefully if we fall flat on our faces, people won't laugh and say, told you so, but we'll pray for you, pick you up and say, have another go. And so if you believe that the Lord is calling you into a gift of prophecy and one Sunday morning you come to the front and you say, Jonathan, I just 
And this is good protocol, by the way. This is a nice little teaching point for all of us. If during our sung worship you think the Lord is giving you something to say, don't rush up and grab a microphone and wave at the back and turn it on. Come to me or somebody who's leading worship and say, I just think that the Lord is saying this. Let us just listen to it and check, you know, before we start pronouncing things over God's people that might be absolutely crazy. At least have one person agree with your craziness, you know? But it might be that you kind of feel like the Lord says to you, I really feel like I should say this. So you come to the front and you speak to me or one of the elders or somebody and you say, yeah, I think you should share that. And so you share that, but then nobody says anything to you afterwards. You could get crushed by that. You could get wiped out by that. Or you could realize we're a community. And you know what? If you didn't hear from God that week, that, that's okay. We're going to hear that together and work it through. We'll reflect on it and pray together. Well, what was it you heard? How was it that the Lord said that to you? Okay. And by being in this community, by encouraging one another to use those gifts, by shepherding each other through moments where we don't quite get it right, and by encouraging one another in our times of reflection, then we will strengthen the use of the spiritual gifts among us. But friends, if we're the kind of community, the first time someone steps out and falls, we laugh at them. Let's not expect to be a community that's thriving in the use of the spiritual gifts. Let's just, let's just quit right now. But if we can be a community where we have a high tolerance for failure because failure is the way that things actually get achieved, then maybe, just maybe, this is a community where we can flourish in our use of spiritual gifts. That fear can be lifted off that faith can rise and the fullness of what God has for us can be our reality. Amen.